Al Jazeera podcast. As 2023 wraps up, we're revisiting some of the stories that defined our year. We're breaking down 2023 in 10 episodes. One of them was Israel's mass movement of anti-government protests. In July, the far-right government passed a law that limited the powers of the judiciary, what critics called a judicial coup. Before October 7th, it was the biggest story in Israeli society, while in the background, Israeli army and settler violence against Palestinians in the occupied West Bank escalated to levels not seen in years, led by that same Israeli government. So today, we're revisiting some of those issues to understand what has and has not changed. Here's our episode from July 28th. A note, none of the dates or other references have been updated. It was a major victory for Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, maybe the biggest ever in a long career. We are breaking into programming to go to Israel, where the parliament has approved the first part of controversial judicial changes. Netanyahu and his coalition pushed through the first part of their judicial overhaul plan on Monday, despite months of protests. Today, we carried out the required democratic move. The move was aimed at restoring a degree of balance between the authorities, which was here for 50 years. The so-called reasonableness law limits the Israeli Supreme Court's power to overrule decisions made by the government. Critics are calling the move a judicial coup, and members of the opposition walked out, abstaining from the vote. Outside the halls of power, Israeli citizens have been protesting the changes to the judiciary for seven months, and they've only been ramping up. For weeks, furious crowds have hit the streets. For them, Monday was a major defeat, and it gets at a fault line in Israeli society. When the Supreme Court don't have the tools to be independent, Israel won't be a true democracy anymore. I'm here today to make it clear to the people that I've elected, to the people that I voted for, to the people that I support, that I am 100% in favor of this judicial reform. So what's the end goal of this judicial overhaul? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. My name is Amjali Raki. I'm a Palestinian citizen of Israel and a senior editor at 972 Magazine. And I'm calling in from Haifa. And what does your day look like today? What's on tap for assignments right now? We've uh, basically been trying to think of all the ways we can cover different angles about what's been happening this week. Just trying to stay on top of a, a very busy parliament, trying to pass some of the worst laws you can think of, basically. This law that was just passed has become known as the Reasonableness Bill because it removes the Supreme Court's ability to rule on government actions that it considers unreasonable. What are some examples of rulings in the past where that's happened? So the one that's being most cited in the media at the moment is actually one that happened this year. Basically, the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, wanted to bring onto his cabinet 
uh, a man named Arya Derry, who is the head of the ultra-Orthodox Shas party. And Derry has been a longtime politician and uh, a member of Bibi's coalition. And Netanyahu wanted to make him a government minister, I think Minister of Interior this time around. And the Supreme Court actually intervened, saying that this appointment was unreasonable and that the government was not really in its right to appoint this man because Arya Derry actually has a long history of being not only accused of corruption charges, but actually being convicted on corruption charges. Israel's Supreme Court has ordered Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to remove a senior minister of his newly formed government over a past criminal conviction. The minister in question is Netanyahu's health and interior minister, Arya Derry. The court said it doesn't make sense to have a man like this take such a high public office. So this is kind of one of the most recent ones that are being discussed. But it's actually quite interesting to see what other members of the Israeli government are citing as examples that they want to kind of circumvent based on reasonableness. Two other examples that Yariv Levine, who is the justice minister, mentioned was actually about uh, Israeli figures or academics who seem to be quite vocal against the occupation or were accused of potentially supporting some kind of form of academic boycott or soldiers not serving in the occupied territories. So these were the examples that Levine was bringing. And basically what they showed is that the dominant theme which the government is concerned about isn't necessarily just about issues of appointments. Actually, the Levine examples were entirely about Palestinians and the occupation or criticism of the occupation. Mm -hmm. So while there's definitely a very wide range of reasonableness cases over the years, it's quite interesting to see the government say upfront, these are actually the main issues that concern us in regards to this field. So what do you make of that when you hear that those are the main issues and they are about that specific issue? I mean, it's easy to say that this is an open secret, but it's not a secret at all. Despite this whole narrative about the far right chipping away at Israeli democracy and what this might entail for Jewish Israelis, most of the far right figures are, have been quite blunt that the end game of this entire judicial overhaul for them is about annexation. It is about entrenching Israel's rule over the occupied territories. It is about making the settlement enterprise permanent. It is about completely erasing any potential for Palestinians to push back against Israeli policies in front of the Israeli courts. And so they've been very upfront. So it's quite out there, but for some reason it's being largely ignored by the Knesset opposition, in part because it's actually an agenda that they share quite openly. Mm. It's also being ignored because of this, it's this very easy myth that even people in the United States are buying, of that this is a defense of democracy and that this is different visions of what Israel should be. But in fact, this vision has been accumulating for many, many decades. And this is just kind of this last stage in the eyes of the far right to really cement their kind of executive power and executive rule. So let's talk about the vote itself. It passed 64 to 0, which is not the kind of vote tally that you might expect to see for something that is this controversial. But there is a reason for that. What happened? So the Israeli Knesset has 120 seats. And the coalition majority that we have right now is that solid 64. And so basically, you know, the coalition whips and the ministers made sure that everyone showed up th uh, to ensure that this bill would pass. The reason why the opposition was zero is because the opposition decided to walk out of the vote in protest. That very contentious bill has now passed. We have gotten reports 
that the opposition has left. Members of the opposition in the Knesset have left the building. There are reports that they did not vote on that third and final reading of this bill. They've done this a couple of times before as a matter of principle and to kind of give this image that we don't even consent to this game of power that the coalition is trying to play and to not give it even legitimacy of being debated because they regard this as an undemocratic law. So this is why you have that zero number. So the opposition Knesset members obviously participated in the kind of debates and the screamings and the shoutings that happened and, mm-hmm. you know, entering all these negotiations with the prime minister and the high up ministers. But in the end, some either just like symbolically walked off, some just didn't show up at all. Mm-hmm. People took different approaches, but they made a point to go to the media and say that we oppose this. Prime Minister Netanyahu has said that the judiciary will remain independent and that the government will now be able to carry out policies in line with what the majority of Israeli citizens want. I asked Amjad what he thought about that claim. So this is one of the rather bizarre and factless myths that the Israeli rights have been promoting for quite a number of decades. In the rights narrative, the Supreme Court is constantly obstructing government policy and it's constantly impeding on the ability to pursue either, you know, basic public duties or even allowing Israel to kind of fulfill its full potential, whether it's, you know, for its citizens or even kind of expanding its housing and its settlements, etc. And this is really a myth. For the most part, the Supreme Court has actually been almost in lockstep overwhelmingly in lockstep Mm. with the Israeli government on everything from the occupation to racist and discriminatory legislation to all sorts of government decisions. There was like one study that looked at petitions to the Supreme Court that were challenging the government on a whole range of cases. And close to 90% of those petitions were basically rejected by the Supreme Court. In other words, almost nine out of 10 times, the court essentially allowed the government to go ahead with whatever it was pursuing in the first place. But the myth goes deeper than that, Amjad says. It's also a myth that is mirrored in the opposite spectrum by the opposition, which also thinks that the Supreme Court is this bastion of democracy and it's defending Israeli citizens' rights. And a lot of Israelis are buying into this idea. Mm -hmm. So in these two main camps, both of them are kind of living this alternate reality about what the court is Mm -hmm. and how the court actually functions. But you also have Israelis now who are getting more and more annoyed and frustrated that this is becoming the dominant issue in Israeli politics. Keep in mind, for example, that there's a lot of uh, military reservists who are now saying that they won't show up for duty. And so you are having rising numbers being like, okay, this is just going too far. This maybe shouldn't be our priority. But even they don't necessarily think that it's wrong to restrain the court. Or even if they do think that the coup is completely wrong, they're almost not even having the right understandings of why the coup itself is wrong. But there's another party to the conversation, and that's the Palestinians. What Palestinian citizens of Israel think, and how these judicial changes will affect them after the break. Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI. And I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Necessary Tomorrows, 
an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. Amjad's been talking about the myths that surround changes to Israel's judiciary and how they divide Israeli society. But as a Palestinian citizen of Israel, he's also looking at it from a third perspective. Palestinian citizens of Israel make up one in five uh, citizens inside the state. And Palestinians are watching this, seeing these two myths between these two camps, knowing full well what the Supreme Court is because the judiciary has constantly legitimated their own inequality. The Supreme Court has constantly approved all kinds of land confiscations and racist laws, including the Jewish nation state law. Israeli lawmakers have passed a law declaring the country the, quote, nation state of the Jewish people. The law says only Jews hold the right to exercise the national self-determination in Israel. So Palestinian citizens aren't actually being represented at all by this higher political echelon. And their desires are not certainly not taken into consideration. And their critiques of the judicial coup and their critiques of even the protest movement are being shunned and marginalized. So there has been a lot of focus on the months-long protests by Israelis and how these moves will affect democracy in Israel. But how will these changes affect Palestinians? So it's a rather complex question because it's a kind of duality when it comes to Palestinians trying to understand the legal system. On the one hand, the Israeli Supreme Court and even Israeli lower courts and the entire legal system has never really advanced or protected the rights of Palestinians, whether they are citizens of Israel or occupied subjects, and certainly not if they're refugees in exile. In the occupied territories, you know, numerous times when Palestinians have gone to challenge land confiscations for Israeli settlements or their military practices that are conducted, or even when the army uses sniper fire against protesters in Gaza or issues targeted killings, the Supreme Court has almost always said, okay, go ahead. So the courts were never a defender of Palestinian rights. They are not this bastion that the Israelis think that is, or that the Israeli right tries to paint it as. At the same time, and this is a kind of contradictory element of it, is that the Supreme Court and the judiciary is still one of the few avenues that Palestinians have to pull up a fight against the Israeli system. So if you're a Palestinian villager in the Negev, in the Nakab, or a Palestinian in the South Hebron Hills, you feel that you have to go to the Supreme Court to at least drag out the fight. There's a difference between being able to pull up a legal fight for 10, 15, 20 years for your community versus the government being able to fulfill it in one year without any potential for legal battle. Mm -hmm. So this is a kind of contradiction whereby you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. And... For Palestinians, they don't want to be defenders of the court system, but they also know that without it, they're even in a much worse situation. You know, apartheid always has various degrees of violence, and it can always get much more brutal and much more authoritarian. And so this is the kind of, this catch-22 that Palestinians are still grappling with. Keeping that in mind and knowing all of that, were Palestinians part of the months-long protests that we saw in the streets? I know... You weren't among those protesters. Why is that? And and what was the sentiment among your friends and family? Yeah, I I could not 
bring myself to go to a single one of the demonstrations. And I couldn't even do this as a journalist, like because first and foremost, I'm a Palestinian citizen. The first thing is that on the surface level, the symbol of these demonstrations is the Israeli flag. And when you show up at any of these protests, it's just this massive sea of blue and white Star of Davids, which for these Jewish Israelis, they're taking it as a symbol of democracy, as a symbol of liberalism, as a symbol of this better version of the state that the far right is trying to take away. But for Palestinians, you know, even inside the state, they're saying, no, this flag is the flag that confiscated our grandfather's property. This flag is the one that is on the police uniform of the person who is arresting me or beating me at a demonstration. This is the flag that inherently by having the Star of David is telling us this is a Jewish state and you, the non-Jew, do not belong here and we don't want you to belong here. So this is the flag that constantly dictates to us our inequality. Palestinian citizens, even though we have the right to vote and have had the right to vote since 1948, we've never experienced equality, we've never experienced democracy. And even though there are some Palestinian activists who are trying to go there, very dedicated and are doing this often in partnership with Jewish Israelis, but even they, and you can hear them tell these stories of just how alienating it feels to be among those protesters, how much they're being shunned, how much they're being told that, you know, you can come and talk about yourself as a quote-unquote Arab Israeli, but don't mention the occupation. Don't start criticizing the protest movement. Either you get in line with what we're promoting or you don't come at all. Critics of Netanyahu's government say that there is another reason that these changes have been pushed through. They accuse him of attempting to weaken the Supreme Court in order to make it harder to remove him from office over corruption charges that still hang over him. What's the thinking behind how those charges relate to these judicial reforms? It's definitely that confluence of both this kind of wider far-right agenda with Netanyahu, who, you know, for 10, 12, 15 years has been the most dominant overarching force in Israeli politics. He's the kingpin. He's the guy who has been forming coalition after coalition to keep himself in power and who's a very shrewd and smart politician. And once upon a time, he was a much more kind of careful prime minister that he would always push the boundaries of the Israeli system, but he used to do things incrementally. He was always very mindful of how the international community would was watching him and trying to play his cards very carefully. Now, because the corruption charges are being heard right now in the Supreme Court, because there's this new sense of urgency, and because he's finally finding coalition partners who no longer have qualms with his corruption charges, but are actually also exploiting him mm-hmm. and see a mutual interest in both sides to strip the courts as much as possible to enshrine executive power. And so for Bibi, even if he is now doing things differently than they did in the past, it is now very much down to his personal survival. In many ways, he is now almost the weakest prime minister that Israel has seen in a very, very long time. But as far as he's concerned, it's worth it. Where does the situation go from here? You know, at the risk of asking you to look into a crystal ball, what are you feeling happens next? The next things are happening as we speak. The governing coalition basically came back from its uh, parliamentary break in full force. They have an entire legislative package at the ready, and they're going to try to push through as much as possible in those coming weeks. They're really not caring about this protest movement so far. 
this feeling among the far right that this is really their only time to get what they want is what's really making them go full steam ahead. The protest movement or anyone who opposes this kind of attempted judicial overhaul or the legislative agenda really has to up the price economically, politically, reputationally, whichever way. Mm -hmm. And they're just not there yet, which is saying something considering this is one of the most massive kind of campaigns of civil disobedience that's ever been seen in the country for the past half year. Mm. But even that's clearly not enough. You're kind of seeing this on the ground as well. Even National Security Minister uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir had a press conference on a hilltop just a few weeks ago, and he's telling the settlers, run for the hills, go for it, we've got your backs, don't worry about it. So all this is manifesting not just at the high level, but on the ground. And this is a very terrifying reality. Again, it's this culmination of many things that have been going on for years, but the severity and the degree to which this is happening at such a rapid pace, and whereby they're not just talking about entrenching apartheid, but they're actually saying, we want to go for the full expulsion of Palestinians. That is a terrifying thought. This is actually a very real threat with people in power who are consolidating the power and the authority to do so. And this is exactly where the judicial coup fits in. It's not just about this idea of what Israel should look like. It is about how do we simplify the state processes to get rid of Palestinians as quickly as possible, to make sure that they can't fight us back, and to ensure that everyone knows that we have Jewish supremacy from the river to the sea. This is the end game of the judicial coup. Consolidate the executive power, consolidate military power, remove any potential for legal and judicial pushback, and then you have your ultimate Zionist state in the eyes of the far right. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Faranisa Campana with Zaina Badr, Sonia Bagat, Amy Walters, Miranda Lynn, Khaled Sultan, David Enders, Chloe K. Lee, Ashish Malhotra, and me, Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Nay Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.